we are in the second week of this six-week series that we have entitled Savior. And last week we looked at that word of what that word actually means in the English. Because I think oftentimes we, especially if we've been in church for a long time, you ever know, you ever heard of this term? We used to joke around with this in our staff meetings at different churches that I've been a part of. You try to avoid uh, Christianese. You ever hear that word before? Uh, Like things that if you've grown up in the church, you kind of know what you mean by those words that you use. And then other people who are brand new in their faith or maybe come to a church and they don't have a relationship with the Lord yet, they're like, we have no idea what you're saying right now. We always used to say, let's try to avoid those Christianese type words. And I think even Savior, as magnificent a name that that is, can easily fall into that category if we do not remind ourselves what we mean by that word. And last week we looked at, well, what, what does that word actually mean? It literally means this in Webster's Dictionary. I want to mention it again so that we remind ourselves. It literally means someone that saves you from danger or destruction. And when we define that word and we just defined it just a just literally just seconds ago, when we think about that, what that, what that should tell us is, is that every person that comes in these doors, that would be you, and every person that you walk by and you interact with as you leave the doors today, and God willing, he gives you tomorrow and this next week, the people that you will interact with, whether or not they are seeing Jesus as their savior, what we need to remind ourselves of is every one of us is looking for a savior. It's just a matter of who or what that person or thing is. Remember we just gave some examples like some people may be looking at a relationship as their savior, as a thing that is going to save them from something that they don't want to experience. Maybe that's loneliness and so you would look at your relationships as your savior or you would look at your employer as your savior because he's saving you or she's saving you from experiencing what you don't want to experience which would be unemployment. And so you would look at them as your savior. Maybe it's a financial deal that you're hoping to to see come to fruition. And so you're looking at that financial deal and you're saying, "If, if this can happen, it will save me from, quote unquote, whatever that danger is. So all of us have a savior. So that's not the question. The question is, are we looking to the right person to be that savior? And that's what we're doing over these six weeks that started last week is we are joining Jesus in the Gospels on the journey that he is making during his last week before his journey culminates to going to the cross and and being risen for our sins so that we can have a relationship with him and have victory in this Christian life and have a hope of forever with Jesus one day, that we're on this journey with Jesus on these very last days and hours before he goes to the cross for you and for me. So this morning we're gonna be in John 13. So if you wanna turn there, John 13 verses one through 17. And here's the title of the message this morning. It's this, the humility of the upper room. So last week, we, we looked in the book of Luke and looked at Jesus entering into Jerusalem and what would be called the triumphal entry. Normally a passage of scripture that would be preached on Palm Sunday, but we're, we obviously did it last week and, and joined Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem knowing exactly what he's doing. 
knowing exactly why he's entering into Jerusalem, knowing that he, as he enters Jerusalem, that he will be facing the cross, and he will be facing the persecution, and he will be facing the mocking. And we looked at last week how Jesus chose to do that. He wasn't tricked. He wasn't hoodwinked. He wasn't uh, tripped up. He wasn't trapped. He chose it, and he chose it for you, and he chose it for me. And now we come to this passage in John 13, 1 through 17, and here's what I want you to see from this passage of Scripture, and we're just going to walk through it this morning. It's this idea that Jesus, our Savior, that Jesus demonstrated perfectly, keyword, perfectly, that loving others involves humbling yourself. I don't know if there's a greater passage of Scripture next to Jesus being on the cross that demonstrates perfectly his humility and his love for his disciples and really the example of what that looks like to you and to me. And so I want to pray just in this moment as we unpack this very familiar passage of Scripture to some of us, and maybe others of us, we've never been in it before. And regardless of who you are, I know the Lord's going to speak because as we say here at Harvest, when his word is open, his mouth is open. So would you, along with me as I pray out loud, would you pray that the Lord would show you, and as I've prayed, as I've studied this passage of Scripture this week, and I can promise you the Lord showed me where we can humble ourselves. God, we're here today to hear from you. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have had to praise your name through song, to declare and remind ourselves of the awesomeness of who you are as our Savior. God, I thank you that there's another one in the fire, and we're experiencing that figure to fire. That there's another one in the waters when we're experiencing that storm. And Lord, as we look at this passage of Scripture today and look at how you perfectly demonstrated your humility and your love to those disciples in that upper room. And Lord, as we look at this demonstration of humility, God, would we see where we need to humble ourselves and to love others the way that you love us. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I'm going to read, we're actually going to walk through this passage of Scripture, but I want to make mention of what we find in verse 1, this phrase where it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's such an awesome phrase, right? Just declaring Jesus' love, that he loved them, he loved us, to the end. That's why I said when we look at this passage of Scripture, what I want us to understand is Jesus demonstrated perfectly that loving others involves humbling yourself. And so we need to remind ourselves, now Jesus is in the upper room. He's entered into Jerusalem. He's entered in on that donkey that's never been ridden before. Now they find an upper room. He's with his disciples in the upper room. Here's what's happening right now. There's no more feedings. The feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000, they're over. The feedings are over. There's no more miracles happening. 
No more healings, no more mountainside awesome sermons, no more calming the storms. All of that's in the past. And it's him with his 12 disciples in an upper room that most likely was borrowed. And just think about it. Just put ourselves. You've heard me say this before. When we're reading through narratives, you put yourself in the story. Just think about this. Jesus could have said a lot of things to his disciples, right? Like Jesus knows in a matter of hours, he will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. In a matter of 24 hours, he will be facing the cross. So, so this is like prime time, important time with his 12 disciples. And he could have said a lot of things. He could have said, there's one more thing. I've left the most important thing that I want you to hear. So listen up, disciples. I'm going to say it. Or there's one more miracle that I want to do. You thought all the others were amazing. I got one more that I've been holding out on that I want you to see right now. But as I said already, all of that was over. See, Jesus understood that this time right now was a most important time not to say another thing, but to demonstrate something. Because as we look at this passage of scripture, it's not so much in what Jesus said, but what he did and when he did it. Think about it. You ever have this parenting advice? Oh, you would never say it, but, but maybe you've had this parenting advice or leadership. You know, you've, 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 you've maybe done this as a leader or for sure, I know I've done this as a parent. You've never said this phrase. Maybe you have, but you've definitely acted upon it. Do as I say, not as I do right? Like all of us, I'm not even going to have you raise your hand because I don't want to shame you, but all of us have done that in some way as a parent if you have kids. Or you've even done that if you have people underneath you and you would say, man, maybe you've even had to go back to your kids or those if you're at a, at a workplace to your employees and you said, hey, you know what? Here's the reality. I said a horrible example. I told you to do something and I didn't even demonstrate it. But you don't see that with Jesus. Jesus in this time of what we're about to unpack doesn't say to his disciples, hey guys, you need to humble yourself. Like, you guys need to do that. He doesn't preach a message on it because he demonstrates it by what he did and when he did it. Remember how we defined humility last week? We even saw the humility of Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey that had never been ridden. We said this, humility is a submissive mindset that manifests itself in selfless action. And so before we even get into this message and you're like, oh man, we're talking about humility this morning and you're already arguing with me in your mind, this message is for you. <laughs> All right? So let's look at this passage of scripture and what I wanna do is I wanna give you four principles of humility Jesus demonstrated perfectly through the washing of the disciples' feet. And here's the first one, but I wanna read verses one and two before I give you this first principle. Here it is, look at it, verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now here's what I want you to see in verses one and two. 
are the words that are used to denote the timing of when this takes place. Remember, every word in Scripture is important. Notice the timing, the timing words that are used. Now, before, when, hour, to the end, during. That's why I said it's not the fact that Jesus humbled himself, it's when he did it. Which leads me to the first principle. Here it is. That we can see Jesus demonstrated perfectly through this story of the washing of the disciples' feet. Number one, when it's the hardest to love, humble yourself. When it's the hardest to love. I mentioned this already, but but I'm going to mention it again. Jesus did this within 24 hours of going to the cross. You don't think Jesus was stressed? You don't think Jesus had a lot on his mind? You don't think Jesus... Had a lot on his shoulders. And I find it so interesting that Jesus does this within 24 hours of the cross. Knowing his arrest was imminent. Knowing what was coming. Knowing the mockery and the spitting and the flogging and the crown of thorns and the sign over his head and the nakedness and the pain and the agony. And his mother, seeing his mother being sorrowful at his feet. The dark sky, the separation from God himself. The sword in his side. Knowing all of that was about to come within 24 hours. Remember, Jesus is God. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus is all-knowing. Jesus wasn't trapped. Remember that. He didn't think something else would happen differently than what happened. Jesus knew all of this was about to happen. And he chose to demonstrate what humility looks like in spite of everything that he was facing. What I think is interesting in this story, just in looking at verse one, and really taking time to look at this story in a fresh way, is that the greatest single act of humility came at the time of Jesus' greatest pressure. That's why I say the first principle is this, that when it's the hardest to love, humble yourself. See, we say, we've said this before about humility in different passages that we've looked at, whether it's been in our series in Philippians, whether it was even last week, but here we come to this story that is just blatantly all about humility, that humility is not about what you feel. It's not about what I feel. It's not motivated by what I feel. You know why? Because I'll never feel that I need to be humble. It's never going to happen. There's never any time that's, man, I'm just feeling like I should be humble. I'm really feeling like I should be humble to you right now. I just have this feeling. It's never happened in my life before. Never. Because humility is not a feel thing. Humility is a do thing. Never in the Bible does it say this, be humble. Never does. You know what it does say? Humble yourself. Because it's not just a submissive mindset. No, no, no. It's a submissive mindset that manifests itself in selfless actions. Humility is not a feel thing. Humility is a do thing. Now look at verse 2. It says this, during supper, 
when the devil had already put, that word put means literally to thrust, to throw, or to cast. So Judas is obviously possessed by Satan at this point. It says, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Can we just remind ourselves that Judas is here during this whole time? It's like, not forget that. Like, sometimes the most familiar is the most forgotten when we look at a story like this. Judas is right here. Have you ever been invited to someone's house or a party, invited to a party, and you know the person that hates you is going to be there? You ever been there? Better yet, you're in a grocery store, right? Just pushing your cart along, minding your own business, and all of a sudden you pass by an hour and you're like, ooh, there's that person that I don't want to see. And so what are you doing? You're like trying to avoid every, I don't need what's down in that aisle anymore, right? You ever been there? Shake your head yes. Am I the only one? No, absolutely not, because I, I never see anybody like that. Think about Jesus. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. And Judas is right there in the thick of things with the other 11 disciples. Judas is right there. He's going to be eating with Jesus. He's going to get his feet washed by Jesus. But you don't see anywhere in this passage of Scripture where Jesus rejects Judas. And I wouldn't fault Jesus if he did. But he doesn't. See, I think about it this way. When I'm placed in a painful or personal situation, here's what I am tempted to do. I am tempted to flee and get out of there. I want to deal with that. I want to be put in that situation where I have to be nice, where I have to humble myself. It's to flee or it's to fight. No, 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 it's about my rights. It's about me defending myself. It's about me making sure that I'm letting that person know or hear me or whatever it is. It's to flee or it's to fight. But notice that when we look at this first principle, when it's hardest to love, humble yourself, what God desires you to do and what God desires me to do is not to flee, is not to fight, it's to fall. It's to humble yourself. And the greatest, I found this true in my life, I wish it wasn't the case, but it's the reality and we see it here with Jesus, the greatest acts of humility and spiritual growth come out of your deepest pain. They do. We're talking about this story today of Jesus's because of that reality. But there's something about the deepest acts of pain or betrayal or whatever it is. That's when you learn the most what it means to humble yourself. Because listen to me, the with God, not with our culture, but with God, the way up is down. First Peter 5, 6 says this, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Jesus knew that there would come a day of exaltation, but he had to humble it himself when it was hardest to love. Here's a second principle. Look at verses three and through five. It says, Jesus knowing 
that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. That's such an amazing phrase. Jesus knowing, that word knowing literally has the idea if he was actively knowing, he was reminding himself of the reality of who he was. See, here's the second principle. When you need to focus on the big picture, humble yourself. See, some of us are in this room right now and we need to focus on the big picture. We've gotten sidetracked focusing on, on how we've been wronged, how something's been done to us, how we're, 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 in some, we're allowing some little situation to get us off kilter to what God has called us to do. And Jesus sets the perfect example of when you need to focus on the big picture, what do we do? We humble ourselves. Often in the Gospels, we are not given privy to Jesus' thoughts. Though they all would have been pure, Because he was God, he was sinless. We often aren't told what Jesus was thinking, but in this passage of scripture, we are. We're told we know exactly what he's thinking based on that word knowing. What is he thinking? He says it right here, look at it again. That the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus was focused on the big picture as he's about to wash his disciples' feet. Even with all the weight and all the pressure and knowing what he was going to have to endure, he was reminding himself of what he knew to be true. In this verse, we can gather that he's saying, I know who I am. I know what I've been called to do. I know how it ends. I know this won't last forever. I know this isn't my ultimate faith. fate. I came from the Father, and I'm gonna go back home. See, Jesus knew his position. He knew who he was. He didn't have to argue with anybody. He didn't have to prove that he was God. He knew who he was. It says it. The Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew his position. He didn't waver on that. He knew his identity, that he had come from God. He knew he was God in the flesh. He knew he was the second person of the Godhead. He knew his identity. He knew his position. He also knew his destination. Look at it, what it says there. He knew he was going back to God. And because Jesus reminded himself, I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know where I'm going one day. I know this is how it will end. Focusing on the big picture motivated him to give one of the greatest lessons on humility that has ever been given. That's why I say the lesson for us is this, the promises of God shape our present and future reality. We focus on the big picture and we humble ourselves. I wonder this morning, how are you allowing the promises of God to shape your present and future reality? to give you perspective. Because what I choose and what you choose to actively dwell on will motivate and manifest in acts of humility. What I am not demonstrating acts of humility that God is sovereignly placing me in, it's because I'm not reminding myself of the big picture. Let me just give you some verses on the big picture. You want some of these? Just just write these references down. If you want to write them right in the margin of your Bible, I encourage you to do that. That way, you don't lose the paper that you're writing on. 
Let me give you this. Isaiah 54, 17, listen to this. Here's some, here's some promises of God of present and future reality. If you need to be reminded of the big picture this morning, here it is. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. That's some pretty good promises, right? That ought to shape my present and future reality. That ought to make me say, Lord, even though in my flesh I don't want to humble myself, Lord, I see it as an opportunity that you are growing me, and so, Lord, I'm going to humble myself. Why? Because I understand whose I am, I understand where I'm going, I understand my position, my identity, my destination. Lord, I'm going to remind myself of that, and here's an awesome verse to remind myself. You see, Paul do that in his letters, right? It's almost kind of humorous to us who are looking at it. Sure, it wasn't humorous to him. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 4.14. Like, these are his last words. 2 Timothy, he's about to be executed. So he's writing to Timothy, his protege, and here's what he says. And you would almost, if you read it at first blush, be like, ooh, Paul, man, having a bad moment here. But listen to this, 2 Timothy 4.14. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. What was Paul doing? He was reminding himself, hey, my responsibility is to humble myself, not to be judge and jury. Alexander's gonna get his. My responsibility is to focus on the big picture and do what? Humble myself. Romans 16, 20. This is an awesome verse. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Do you need to be reminded of the big picture this morning? It feels like you're losing. And because it feels like you're losing, you are avoiding the opportunities to humble yourself. Wait a minute. Focus on the big picture. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Now look at verses four and five. That was just in verse three. Verse four, it says, he rose from supper and he laid aside his garments, outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Do you notice the action verbs in verses four and five? Remember how we talked about the, the words that give the timing of when this happened? Well, now look at all these action verbs that tell us how Jesus humbled himself. He rose, he laid, he took he tied, he poured, he washed, he wiped. What does that tell me? Jesus worked. This wasn't a passive thing. He worked. And it was such serious, dirty work that he had to take off his outer garments because it was that dirty. He had to get in slave clothes. So, I think most people in here realize this, but I don't want to take, take for granted there may be some in here who don't. Foot washing was something that was done back in this time. So if you came over to my house uh, for dinner and you went to the sink in the kitchen and, and you 
got some soap and you washed your hands uh, before dinner, I wouldn't have thought anything. I'd be like, wow, that's, that's great. He or she needed to wash her hands. I wouldn't have thought anything, wouldn't think anything about that. I'd be like, because that's what you do, right? When you've been at work all day, hopefully you're washing your hands, what you're telling your kids to do, right? Because that's something that we do. Well, back in this time, they didn't do that. So as weird as it would be for you to come to my house and to take off your shoe and literally throw your leg up on the counter and take the nozzle off of the sink and start washing your feet in my sink, that'd be pretty weird, right? You'd be like, that guy's not coming back to our house again. That's what they did back then. They didn't necessarily wash their hands as much as they were focused on washing their feet. Why? Because back then, you had dirty roads. You didn't have paved roads. You had dirty roads. Majority of the roads were, were not paved. And so you're wearing sandals without socks. Wearing sandals. So your feet were griming. They were dirty. You've been walking around all day. And so to not wash someone's feet would have been looked at something that would have been grotesque and not sanitary because after all, when they would eat, they would eat on couches and they would literally lay kind of off to the side. So obviously you don't want to be eating with someone's feet that are dirty right in your face. And every time I've ever read this story, I always think this. That the God of the universe, the creator of all things, Jesus Christ, kneels down, undresses himself because it's dirty and it's ugly. And he kneels down and he takes these disciples' feet, the very feet that he created, and he washes them and the dirt is coming off of them and I'm sure it's nasty and it smells and getting the dirt out from between their toes. And oh, Do I need to go on, right? I mean, doing all of that this is the Savior. And he's washing the feet. And you don't see any of those other disciples saying, I'll do it. Normally you would have someone there in the, at the dinner that would do this for all of the guests. But I think it's so interesting that none of the disciples see, hey, we don't have anybody to wash our feet, so who wants to do it? Let's go paper, rock, scissors. Who's going to be the person to do it? No, no, no. What does Jesus do? Jesus is the one that does it. Just think about the people in the room. Just think about it right now. And let's rank who should be the least person to be doing this act, just think in your mind. The last person that should be doing this, and then think in your mind, who is the person that everyone, if you were there, you would vote as the person that needs to do it? So how many of you have Jesus as the least? Yeah. How many of you have Judas as the most deserving to do this nasty act? Yes. But that's not the case, right? See, Jesus looked at the big picture. He focused on what he knew. He focused on what he was called to do. Hebrews 12, 2 says, We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus reminded himself of the big picture. See, here's your big picture. You know who you are. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus' perfect life, perfect death, and resurrection for your sins, not the good that you hope you can do that's enough to warrant favor with a holy God because we know that that's not the case. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you've placed your full trust in what he has accomplished for you, here's your big picture. You know whose you are. You know what you've been given. You know how it will end for you. And you know where you are going. Focus on the big picture. Here's a third principle, and it's found in verses 6 through 11. Here it is. When you want to argue with God, humble yourself. When it's hardest to love, humble yourself. When you need to focus on the big picture, humble yourself. When you want to argue with God, Humble yourself. Here's why I say that. Look at verse six. It says, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now remember, we're reading out of the gospel of John. And I don't know if you maybe notice this or not when you're reading the gospels, but evidently John and Peter had like this rivalry thing going on between them. Because John has no problem mentioning who's the person who wanted to argue with Jesus. Oh yeah, that guy's Simon Peter. I mean, let me let everybody know about it till Jesus comes back one day. Let me write it down. It just, I just thought to myself, man, even think about like John 20, right? Once again, in the Gospel of John, John is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He talks about this race that happens after Jesus resurrects himself from the grave, and John just tries to indicate that he's being humble, and he says, yeah, Peter and this other disciple were running, and the other disciple outran Peter. Like, let me just make that known. Like, there's not any significance to that. You know, that doesn't help you understand the story better, but I just want to throw that in there. There's obviously, it's just kind of funny when you think the Bible has such humor in it. You know, John's probably like, I didn't get to walk on water. I wasn't quick enough to say when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter got that. But I outran Peter to the tomb. I got that going for me. I mean, Peter's often the guy that's criticized, right? Have you ever heard preachers do that? Well, Peter's the guy that always puts his foot in his mouth, right? Right? And what's awesome is as you look at this individual of Peter and that really doesn't change for the rest of his life. It's not just in the Gospels. Like in Acts 10, do you remember? Like Peter's being told the diet that he can now have and there's this, this literally this, this uh, massive sheet filled with all of these animals that would have been against eating according to Jewish Levitical law. And, and God in this dream is basically telling him, hey, all of these things are permissible. And you know what Peter says? No, Lord! No, Lord? Like you're telling the Lord no that gave you this dream? Acts 15. There's this confrontation because Peter is acting different when he's with Jews than he is with Gentiles, and he's playing this two-timing game, and I'm going to act this way, a little more highfalutin with the Jews, and look down on the Gentiles because they're not circumcised, and, and then when I'm with the Gentiles, I'm going to act a different way, and, and you find in Galatians 2 that Paul literally confronts Peter to his face, 
They had this showdown. So Peter is for sure someone that doesn't necessarily mind arguing with God, but here's the awesome thing. God, God uses Peter in an amazing way anyway. And aren't you glad that God uses you in spite of yourself? And I sure am glad that's the case for me. But look at verse seven. It says, so Jesus answered him. So, so Jesus in his grace is gonna answer Peter. Lord, because he's like, Lord, you wanna wash my feet? Notice Peter's not volunteering to wash everybody's feet. And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Seriously, Peter? Going to argue with, with the Lord? He's on his knees right now. He's probably washed other people's feet. They didn't argue with him whatsoever. They were probably ashamed that they didn't think of it. But only Peter's the one that mentions he's arguing. Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. I don't care what you say. Now look at verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed need not wash except for his feet, but one is completely clean. You see this like this, this dialogue going on. Lord, don't wash my feet. Well, if I don't wash you, you're not going to have part of me. Lord, wash everything. <laughs> but Peter is, or Jesus is so patient with Peter. He's patient and he's direct. And listen to me. Some of us right now are faced with a situation where the Lord is wanting to teach you what it looks like to humble yourself. And you're wanting to argue with God. Lord, not this situation, not this way, not this person, not in this circumstance. And the Lord's like, you need to humble yourself. And you need to let me do what I need to do in order for you to grow in your sanctification. See, that's what Jesus is illustrating. The reason why he tells Peter, you don't need to be bathed from head to toe is because you're already clean, Peter. You already are a follower of mine, but I do need to clean your feet. And in my Christian walk, I don't need to be saved again when I sin. I don't need to once again, when I sin and I wander away from the Lord, say, well, I need to confess my sins again and I must not have believed that Jesus Christ was my Savior. No, that's not what I need to do. What I need to do is I just need to go to the Lord and I confess and get right with God and become clean in my relationship with the Lord, acknowledge my sin for what it is so that I can grow in my walk with the Lord. What Jesus is illustrating here, though Peter didn't understand it, is how sanctification works. I don't need to be justified again. But my Christian walk is constantly about me realizing and being faced with, okay, that's an area that I need to submit to. Okay, that's an area that I need to submit to. And when you are placed in situations where you are being called to humble yourself, nothing grows your faith more. And it's not a place to argue with God. It's a place to submit to the Lord. Now look at verses 10 and 11, the end of verse 10 and into 11. And he says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. In other words, who's he speaking of? Say it out loud. Judas. Because he says in verse 11, once again, for he knew Jesus wasn't tricked. He wasn't caught off guard. 
He knew exactly everything that would take place for your salvation and for mine. He knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. There's no indication. This ought to blow your mind. There's no indication in this passage of scripture that Judas didn't get his feet washed. How many of you would, be, would, would have been absolutely fine today if this passage of scripture said Judas, Jesus just passed over Judas and didn't wash his feet? Can we just be honest this morning? My hand's raised. Would not have blamed Jesus one bit. But I don't see that. See, humility isn't groveling. It's not you just groveling to everybody. That's not humility. Humility is not enabling. See, some of you are right now and you're like, man, I'm, I'm married to my spouse and they're treating me or they're being abusive or they're doing this or that and I'm praying for them and I'm exercising what it says in, in 1 Peter and I'm, I'm praying for my husband but they're treating me this way or I'm praying for my wife and they're treating me this way and I'm just supposed to be okay with it? No, no, no. Humility is not enabling if your spouse is an alcoholic and they ask you to go buy them alcohol at ABC liquor store, you don't say, well, I need to humble myself and go do that. Humility is not enabling. It's not groveling. Listen to me. Humility is not manipulating. Notice what Jesus doesn't do here. He doesn't say, hey, guys, I bet you feel pretty foolish now that I had to wash your feet. He doesn't say to Judas, hey, Judas, I know what you're about to do, and I bet you feel about two inches high right now because I know you're about to betray me. No, no, no. Humility is not manipulation. You know how you know you're manipulating? When you're in your mind exercising humility, when you want the results of you exercising humility to happen right now. Okay, Lord, I humbled myself. Now this needs to happen. Fail. fail. Here's the last principle. And it's found in verses 12 through 17. Let's read it before I give it to you. It says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? Notice, remember in verse 7, he says, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing right now. And now he's done washing. In other words, this lesson was not hard to grasp. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. You know what Jesus also could have said here? Okay, guys, I'm done now. I've washed all of your feet, including the one that would betray you. Now who's going to wash my feet? But he didn't. See, something we need to be okay with is the servant is often lost in the act of serving. It's not about you to be seen. It's about you to serve. It's about you to humble yourself. Because that's what it's supposed to be. It's not about you. And then he says in verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Hands up right now if you're a servant. Hands up. Hands up. I am a servant today. Hands up if you are saying, no, 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 I'm the master. 
I don't see any hands raised. That's good. How about this? Hands up if you're saying, no, 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 today I'm the messenger. I understand that's who I am. Hands up. I'm the messenger today. Hands up if you're like, no, 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 I'm the one that gives the message. No hands raised. Why? Because God is the only one that is great. God's great. I'm not great. Newsflash, you're not great. I would tell you to look to the person next to you and say that, but that would not be humble, would it? You're not great. God is great. No one here in this story is great other than the one who humbled himself, our Savior. In verse 17, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Here's the last principle. When you lose sight of your example, humble yourself. Jesus is my example. Jesus is your example. For everything. And also what it looks like to humble yourself. And so often in my life, and so often in your life, you lose and I lose sight of who is great. And I lose sight of who is indeed my example. And it's in those times that I need to humble myself. Because listen to me, humility is an action, not a theory. You're not going to help anybody if you're like, yeah, I believe in this theory and this, and this idea of humility. I don't know. It makes an impact when it's an action, not a thought, not a theory. I close with this in John 13, 34, and 35. I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus says this after he washes the disciples' feet. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. What did we say at the beginning of this message? It's this idea that Jesus demonstrated perfectly that loving others involves humbling yourself. Then verse 35, it says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In order for me and in order for you to love the way that the Savior loved you, it requires me and it requires you to humble ourselves the way that our Savior did. Nothing impacts people more than loving with a humble heart. Nothing. That's what the Jesus says will show other people who have yet to have a relationship with him outside of these four walls and maybe some even in this room. That's what will show them that you are different and that I am different. Because I'm doing something that's not naturally in myself. Myself. 